Hey everybody, welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King. I'm Brendan Porter. With families and day jobs, we know it's hard to find time to get out there with your camera. So Brendan and I joined together and made the commitment to go out consistently and build up our landscape and astrophotography portfolios. We live in Utah and are lucky to have so many beautiful landscapes all around us. Not only do we have five national parks right here in Utah, but we are only a day or less drive away from 30 other national parks. So we created PhotogAdventures.com, this podcast, and our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures. Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes. We hope that you will get out there too and have a photog adventure of your own. It's episode 81. And to start off the new 80s numbers, we have a guest with us today. Brendan, who do we have? Today we have with us Dan Bailey. Say hi, Dan. Hi, guys. Hey, Dan. Hey, Thanks this for is joining us. awesome that you're joining us. And it's awesome that Brent Huntley, one of the admins of the Photog Adventures Facebook group, did he run into you? It seemed like all of a sudden out of nowhere, he's like, Dan Bailey, Dan Bailey, Dan Bailey. We got to have Dan Bailey on. <laughs> and I didn't know how he knew you or how you guys met. What happened there? Yeah, so I did a presentation at BNC Camera in Las Vegas last oh, month. And he, okay. and he came to the talk. And then he introduced himself and said, hey, I got a couple podcasts that you could should go on. Nice. So, Oh man! Yeah. So then, and this is great because in 1981 I was in seventh grade. 1981, you were in seventh grade. I didn't mention <laughs> wow. it because I didn't want to make Brendan sad when he announced <laughs> his birth year in 1977. But mine's 1981. I should have mentioned so that get, first okay. thing. Yeah, well, you, you could have easily mentioned that first. Because I don't want to be 36. <laughs> I want to be 33 again. I wouldn't mind being 30 again. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being 36. 50 is the new 30. That's the way I see 50 is the new 30, so I'm really just a teenager now. It's true. You're just like, a punk. Yeah. So it makes sense that I make the decisions I make. You look like a total punk teenager to me. <laughs> <laughs> so were you there teaching Fujifilm and proselyting the Fujifilm camera, which is why Brent found you, or was it camera just photography in general? Yeah, I was doing uh, a number of Fujifilm events at camera stores over the course of the week. And the first stop was Vegas. Cool. Uh, right on. So that explains it. Sweet. Well, then you want to give the introduction of who Dan Bailey is, yeah. and then we'll go right into who Brent has a man crush on and talk to him for the next hour. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Bailey hails from Alaska right now, but he's a Colorado native, oh, and he's been right. in Alaska for, you say, 20, 10 years or 20 uh, years? 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. Okay, 10 years now. And uh, that's long enough to get the lay of the land, isn't it? It's, right. uh, you've been there for quite a while. So you've seen the sun for four months out of the last 10 years? Uh, you know, we actually have more sun than you guys. Oh, uh-huh. so the, uh, yeah, that's the right. stereotype yeah. is all wrong. Yeah, it's different. They don't get yeah, the dark. So, I mean, we, we don't. so we, in the, in the wintertime, it's, it's fairly dark. We only have five and a half hours of daylight. Yikes. But right. in the summertime, it's up for 21 hours, and we have near 24 hours of daylight through June and July. That's so crazy. May, 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 June, and July. It's such an yeah. irony that you guys are getting the best dark night skies possible, but then you're at the latitude that doesn't even see the core of the Milky Way. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's our trade-off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, we we have those there. funky green and purple lights in the sky in the wintertime. So those are so boring. Bad, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. The auroras make up for it. There, There is a god because if you can't get the core, <laughs> you're getting the aurora, and that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so there's always some give and take, right? So it, it's always weird when I travel uh, outside the lower to the lower 48, kind of in the warm months. He's lived you know, there for I'm, a long time. He's calling us the lower 48. Yeah, <laughs> you guys. So you know, like you know, March or April or something. You know, in May. You know, I was in Colorado last May or you know, a month ago. 
get down there and it's night dark at nighttime it's really weird <laughs> offsetting like you're, yeah you're like your your system calibration is off because when it's warm it doesn't get dark so right. if, it, if you're warm if it's warm outside and it's dark you're like whoa what's going was, on you're like was there another eclipse <laughs> yeah. wait i'm not supposed to look at it <laughs> that's, the look at, oh, that's the moon that's the moon oh, okay. that's the moon <laughs> It's just the moon, yeah. <laughs> you are a Fujifilm photographer, and you use the Fuji X system, and it also says here on your, on your About page on your website that you're a Photo Pro Showcase photographer, and you're also sponsored by a couple of companies, too. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm uh, primarily uh, my, I guess, biggest sponsor, or however you want to word that, is, is I'm a Fujifilm X photographer, so I'm one of their ambassador shooters, and I was one of their first X photographers in the U.S. Oh, nice. And... I've been shooting the Fuji system for six years, uh, four years full time. And okay. so they made me an ex photographer four years ago. And so I do a lot of, uh, I let do, teach classes for them and I do uh, presentations and camera store talks around the country. And, and I just did uh, a workshop for some of their staff at the national sales meeting. So I, I do a lot of Fuji film related tutorials. Cool. And, so how does that happen? I mean, I know in some situations people will go and they'll ask, can I be an ambassador? This is what I'm doing and showcase their work mm -hmm, and become yeah. an ambassador. Were you headhunted? Yeah. You know, it's, I get that question a lot and I think almost every ex photographer gets that question a lot. Right. Um, how do I become, how do I become such and such? Um, you know, for me it was kind of a, an interesting path because Fujifilm had bought photos from me in the nineties in the 2000s uh, for trade show prints. Oh, wow. So I had, okay. they had been a client of mine at one point. And I hope they paid well. Uh, they paid well back in the day. And in <laughs> fact, I, I still have one of the matted prints that they, they used. They, they would use a print and they would send me the print oh, after really? the trade show. They'd so buy I still it have one of them. And send it back I, to you. Yeah. <laughs> huh. So it, it's a pretty good deal. Um, <laughs> that is really good. Yeah, and so when I started shooting with the X-Series, I, I bought the X-10. That was my first camera that I bought from them. And I, after about six months, I, I just started sending – I sent pictures to the guy who showed it to me at Photo Plus, uh, the, one of the reps. And oh, okay. he started – I said, hey, yeah, you showed me this camera. I, I fall in love with it. I, here's what I'm doing with it. So he just started passing me up the chain, and uh, I just got in contact with the right people. They Or someone reached out to me in fact, and said, Hey, we really like your work. Um, let's, let's keep in touch. And then at the end of 2013, uh, one of the, they brought me on to preview what was to become the XT one. Mm. And, and so I got an early view of that. And I was one of the first people to get a hold of that when it was first announced. And so I, I'd like to joke that I'm the official X series abuser. Uh, <laughs> and, and and in fact, we were, someone would have had asked the guy who brought me on and said, you know what, what was it about Dan Bailey that you saw? Why'd you want to make him an ex photographer? And part of it was definitely the fact that I abused the gear and I'm, I live in Alaska and I'm hiking <laughs> and, and skiing and biking with it. And I tend to beat up my cameras and you know, I'm pretty hard on my gear. Mm -hmm. And so he, you know, he recognized it, you know, the XT1, they were trying to build a system that was, you know, tough and outdoor worthy you know, fast action worthy and, you know, weather shield and everything. So I just, it just seemed like a really good fit for me to be one of the people who was, you know, that and, and I've been telling them for years, you know, I said, I love your cameras, but they're not, you know, at the time it was like the X pro one, X E one. Mm -hmm. 
and I was using the X10 and 20 and the XE1, and I was saying, yeah, I love your cameras, um, but they're not really fast action cameras and weather sealed and tough. Um, but you know, if you ever made something like that, I'd be pretty interested. You know, I'd probably trade my Nikon's in for that, but don't tell Nikon I said that. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Nikon's not listening, and no one in the yeah. podcast listener group actually uses a Nikon, so we're okay. Yeah, right. Well, and, and Nikon used to buy. <laughs> They used to have a really good relationship yeah. with Nikon. They used to buy photos from me too as well. Mm. But the X series was so appealing because it was small and light. And, mm. and you know, as it progressed, you know, it, it wasn't the ideal system at first, but I, I had a lot of belief in what they were doing. And so I just kind of worked my way around the challenges and the limitations of the gear and tried to figure out a way to use it in my style. And the gear is just, they, they've delivered. They keep getting better. And now you know, I'm an X-T2 user, which I think is the best camera I've ever used. That's really? awesome. And you just never used a 5D Mark IV then from Canon, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm just being a Canon jerk yeah, because that's what he's got. <laughs> everyone else around me has these like Canon-Nikon Civil War battles. And I don't really care about gear. I happen to have a Canon glass. So I have a Canon body right now. But uh, X-T2 is something I should even consider if I want to go mirrorless. Yeah, and you know the, the funny the last Canon guy, the last podcast guy was a Canon 5D guy as well. <laughs> it's probably and Brent. Was that Brent? <laughs> it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was. Uh, I can't remember. I, Berger. Yeah, yeah, Brent Berger. Mm. There, there's Brent and Brent, so it's like yeah. Really got stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, the 5D is a great camera. Every camera is great these days, but the XT2 is so light and it's so small, you know. And for what I do, it's it's just it's a joy to carry and hold. And it doesn't weigh me down. And I've used to, you know, Nikons were getting bigger and bigger over the years when I was using them. And at one point, I blew out the muscles of my forearm, you know, just oh, shooting no like one handed, one handed with big lenses, and and I just strained all these muscles. And I oh, had wow. to get had to get some massage therapy for a few months to kind of work that stuff out. Wow. So. It was right around the time when mirrorless was making inroads, and everybody was like, oh, I'm so tired of carrying heavy gear. My back's killing me. My arms are killing me. My shoulders are killing me. Battery had, grips that mm, reach the size of a yeah. helmet. <laughs> yeah. And and so I, you know, I, I get it that they've, you know, the batteries have to be bigger and everything has to be bigger in the DSLRs because you have the, the mirrors assembly and the pen and prism and everything. Right. But for going light and fast in the outdoors, you know, I'm, I, consider myself a student of the Galen Rowell School of Outdoor Photography. You know, light and fast in the outdoors or doing the sports alongside the subjects you're shooting. You're immersed in the landscape and heavy gear just weighs you down. And and for me, the X-Series and like the X-T2 is just such a joy to use. It's an immensely powerful camera, lots of creative features, but it's so small and light. It's just, it's so unencumbering. And it just feels incredibly liberating to have a camera that's that light these days after all those heavy years. Mm. Oh, man. Cool. That's awesome. I mean, that's an incredibly well-spoken advocacy for the Fuji system yeah, yeah. that I have never heard from anywhere. And so I'm glad we get to start the podcast off with that because we need to have people mark a note right here. You were considering Fuji? Listen to this podcast, episode 81. Right, because right. there is an answer right there that I have not heard anyone else say. Mm -hmm. So you must really be an ambassador of Fuji. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and... And I am because I love the system. I genuinely am in love with the Fujifilm system. And I, I part of that is because of the colors. I used to use Fuji photo film, as we talked about before the start. Oh, yeah. I was a, a religious Velvia user for years. You know, Velvia, Provia, Astia, Sensia. Mm -hmm. I loved those films. And now, they, right now. and now they've got the color profiles right back in the cameras. 
So between the small and light cameras and the Fuji colors, I mean, what more could I want? Okay, before we, before we go on to the next segment, because I wanted to ask oh, a yeah. question that segues into something else, now I have to ask you, mm. being a guy who's only done digital and has only thought about, I just get what I got. I don't think about these color profiles. Mm. What would be your one reason that you should recommend someone like me or anyone use that color profile on their camera? What benefit are you getting? So with digital, we've obviously become spoiled because we can shoot a raw file and then just right. spend, yeah. and an, you can literally spend an endless amount of hours sliding sliders in Lightroom. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And somehow we do. <laughs> yeah, and somehow we do. And, and so as someone who cut my teeth shooting film back in the day, which means you, know, you, put a, you, you came across a scene and you decided, I want it to look like this. I'm going to put this roll of film because I know it has this color scheme and this color palette. Mm-hmm. And it's going to portray the scene in this way, you know, and for me, a lot of that was Velvia. So I'm okay. going to put Velvia in my camera and shoot and I need to nail my exposures because if you don't, you'll throw the slide away because film has such a narrow latitude. But if you got it, you got it. And that was it. And that was the slide was your finished image. And then you send it to the, the printer or whatever, the magazine. And so now we can shoot a thousand raw files and instead of throwing away 900 of them, uh, we can edit and slide sliders to our heart's content and right. to rescue this and, and rescue those tones and try to make something of it. So I've gone back to shooting with a film mentality. I'm, I'm shooting mostly JPEGs. I'm choosing the color profiles in the camera. I was going to ask that. Okay. okay. Yeah. And because I, I, I'm so familiar with the, what, how they portray the scene is the color profiles I've been using for years. So I choose a look and some, and I shoot the scene. So my goal these days with photography is to walk away with an image that I love that's done. And, and if I do any processing, it's either because it was a raw that I shot because the light was super tricky and just high contrast or whatever, or there was something specific I wanted to do with the scene. Um, but most of the time I'm shooting JPEGs and, and I walk away with pictures I love. And I tweak them a little bit sometimes, uh, but m- most of my... Most of my finished pictures these days are just JPEG straight out of the camera, Man. and that's another thing that's so liberating for me because I'm not, mm. I'm not, I, I'm spending more time thinking about, you know, when, when I'm sitting on my computer a month later, going through all those pictures, and after I'm doing all my chores and and feeding the cat and and you know getting through a ton of emails and and doing all the stupid web stuff and everything else you do after a vacation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I got my thousand pictures and it's like 10 o'clock at night and I'm blearily eyed and I'm looking at my pictures and going, what was I going for when I shot this? I'm so far removed from the emotions and experiences I had when I actually pressed the button standing that's, on the mountain at sunset a month ago. That's a key point. Hmm. So with, with my finished image that came out of the camera right then, there it was. Mm. So I'm not deferring my creative process till later. Although, you know, there is something, you know, some processing is enjoyable and some people really get into it. And I do to some extent. I use Luminar these days, um, Mm. but I don't spend a lot of time processing. Um, I like that philosophy. I think that's a good philosophy. That's probably, you know, really resonating with people listening right now Mm, is a lot of us have that chore list (laughs) and then we have the chore list of processing every image. And so you end up going through your image, culling out a bunch of so-so images because I'm not going to take any time processing that raw. I don't want to go in and do any bracketing and fix the bracketing and combine these shots and make sure that everything works great, do any luminosity masking. Uh, And you're thinking in the terms of that, 
that. <laughs> and now you're grading your pictures based on how much work you have in post-processing. Mm. And you turn some away just merely by the fact that I don't want to work on that anymore. But when right. you right. took it, you might have been in love with it. And that's a great point you made earlier about, mm. I don't remember what I was going for back then. And if you mm -hmm. had it already and it was good to go, you don't have yeah. to remember it. or try you can see it right there. It's in front of your face. Because you got yeah. it. Yeah, yeah that's... Yeah. Yeah. I have had a really bad habit of working on my other work and not processing my images. And I have images from last March at Grand Canyon all the way to now that I have not processed. Yeah. It's a very common them. theme. And mm -hmm. so you get back from your Grand Canyon trip and you shoot a thousand pictures and your friends go, hey, can we see your pictures? And you're like, well, no, yeah. I got to process Let me first. get back to you in a few well, months. Wait, I got to process it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe next year. <laughs> maybe when, next year. They forgot yeah. that I even went to Grand Canyon by then and they yeah. regret ever saying they want to see it. <laughs> it's so true. And I think that's an awesome perspective to have. I milky photography, I can't do that, but otherwise, I'm very tempted to do that in my landscape photography because mm. mm, I'm all about the composition a whole lot more than I am about the magic of art that I can apply to my image afterwards. Mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah. that's great, Dan. That's a really cool piece of advice. Before we go too down that road, we want to learn more about you as a photographer. You called yourself in our post, in our pre-interview talk. It's not an interview, pre-hangout talk, yeah. that you're an adventure photographer, which is basically the reverse of our logo. You're not a photog <laughs> adventurer. You're an adventure <laughs> photographer. <laughs> and what makes you an adventure photographer, Dan? Uh, because I call myself one. <laughs> hey, um, hey. Yeah, when, when I first <laughs> started com. with photography, you know, I, I within a few months after I bought my first camera, I became familiar with Galen Rowell, who was the father of modern adventure photography. And as a you know a person who does stuff in the outdoors, I like to rock climb and hike and ski and and uh, ride my bike and. And so I, I really was attracted to the idea of, of shooting in a style that captured those exciting moments and, and tribulations and moments of fear and, and exultation when you're, you know, doing some challenging thing in the outdoors. And, and I really like that. I love landscape shooting, but when you add a person into the scene, it's, it gives it an extra dimension. And so that was kind of my definition of adventure photography, but really it's going out and doing things in the outdoors with a camera and being a part of what you're shooting. You know, instead of standing on the sidelines shooting a, a sport or an event, you're actually immersed in whatever you're doing. And mm -hmm. so it, the term can be used pretty broadly. Um, How do you immerse yourself? You talk about a lighter camera. So now I'm picturing you. You're on the surfboard with Chris Burkhard out there doing photography of the surfers. <laughs> you're not just on the beach doing the photography. How do you immerse yourself in yours? Yeah, so I do a lot of bike touring uh, and hiking and stuff, and I'll hike with my camera and or ride with my camera slung right around my shoulder. And so I'm always right there. It's always handy and accessible when I'm doing these things. No wonder why you can't have a cannon. You would have a big old bruise on your back if you mm. rode like that, just constant pounding on your back. Yeah, so, I was thinking about my camera, like I'd be dead <laughs> with your that, battery yeah. grip. <laughs> so then I, I, I was talking with a guy. I was death. talking with a cannon user. <laughs> A few months ago, a friend of mine was a Canon user, and, and he's like, yeah, I, I just don't feel that the gear slows me down very much. And then I kind of hooked him up with two friends to go do a photo walk, and the next, they did a photo sunrise photo hike. And the next day, I talked to them, and they're like, oh, yeah, he couldn't really keep up with us. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been slow because of my camera, but I know that it would bruise the crud out of me if I had it on my neck as mm -hmm. I rode a bike. That would destroy me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just sling it over my shoulder, and oftentimes I'm using these little tiny primes. 
And so mm-hmm. it's just, in fact, sometimes I'll be riding and I'll just be pedaling and on. I'm like, oh, wait, where's my camera? <laughs> Where oh, is oh, it? Oh, it's right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. I wouldn't have that feeling. So then <laughs> you're, yeah, you're like, like oh, I remember oh, where the camera riding. is. Yeah. In fact, I'll I'm never s- forget where that camera is. <laughs> switching shoulders so that I can get through this race. And so you're doing bike tours. You're doing adventure photography. You mentioned Scotland. You went and did a Scotland bike tour. What did you do out in Scotland? Yeah, so I've done bike tours in different places around the world. Uh, in 2001, I rode over the highest passes in the world in Ladakh, India, oh. and pulling all my Nikon gear in a trailer. <laughs> Whoa, what, and, uh, in behind a vehicle or behind your bike? Uh, behind my bike. Oh, awesome. Yeah, we, we were mountain bike touring. Sweet. And uh, a couple years ago, we rode and through Transylvania for five and a half weeks. Oh. Uh, chasing vampires. and <laughs> It was so cool because, you know, Romania and Transylvania is such a, this foreign, you know, stigma because, you know, you know, white people in the U.S., what do we know about Romania? Nothing. Right. Yeah. Know? One but, So it was thing. really cool to, to go over there. And so I, I'd, I'd wanted to go to Scotland for years. I, I just had been attracted to the place. Um, it's, I knew it was a lot of wilderness and, and, you know, highlands and mountains and coastlines and just really cool scenery that I'd, that I'd, you know, seen samples of. And, and so I finally was, you know, a couple of years, I tried to make it happen and just schedules didn't work. And I finally, at the beginning of last year, I said, you know, January comes, I go, okay, May, Scotland, period, nothing on the calendar for May. And so May came and we packed our bikes up and we flew to Edinburgh and we got off the train and we got off the plane and we took the train to Aberdeen. And then we took the overnight ferry 12 hours to the Shetland Islands up to the city of Lerwick, town of Lerwick. 12 hour ferry? 12 hour overnight ferry. You had a longer ferry ride than you had a flight. (laughs) It was, yeah, it was about, uh, for all the flying time, it was about the same. I guess you're coming from Alaska too, huh? Mm. Man. So then going on the flight, on the flight with your bike, through the ferry with your bike, you brought all your gear, brought everything with you? Yeah, so I've gotten it pretty well dialed for bike touring. Uh, my my good friend who I went to India with, uh, he, he's his name's Eric, and he's got a company called Revelate Designs. And so he's developed after the trailer trip, he swore off trailers because they <laughs> there's element they're good in some ways, but they're not so much fun in other ways, hmm. and they're heavy. So he's developed this whole bike bag system of of bags that strap into the frame and on the front and behind the seat and stuff. And so nice. you can ride. You know, unlike like with traditional rack and panniers, you could never ride on a bumpy dirt road because eventually all the rattling would break your rack bolts. Oh, right. And just that shear them right off. And so with his bike gear, his bike packing gear, you can ride on pretty much any kind of terrain as long as it's strapped down tightly. Do so the, I've got the wow. Got I mean, the, but, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just curious yeah. if those uh, those racks have some sort of shock system. How do they survive? So well. well, they're just they're bags that are strategically shaped to fit inside the triangle. There's one that fits in the triangle, oh. one that straps to the handlebars, one that straps behind the seat. Okay, and so, so it's using the frame of the bike, and the yeah, bag is yeah. hooked into it strategically. Exactly. Nice. Yeah, you're strapping the bags onto the bike. Oh, right on. Awesome. Thanks yeah. for answering that. Yeah, and so I've got that stuff pretty well dialed now. And so, um, so it's just a matter of taking the bikes over there and and. Uh, you know, fly anchors to Seattle, to San Francisco, to to Heathrow, to to Edinburgh, <laughs> and then take the, the train and the ferry. Oh my gosh! So we got off the ferry at Lerwick at eight in the for morning. Two days. <laughs> yeah, but we got off the ferry at eight in the morning, and we rode off the ferry, and we just started riding north. 
And so the the Shetland Islands are a series of islands, and they're the furthest furthest north set of islands in the British Isles. And so we just worked our way north, and we went about 35 miles, and then we had the next ferry crossing, which is a tiny little ferry. You know, it's not, it's just little, like, Guy and his mo- dog and a lantern, and he asked for, like, a, a Dutch <laughs> yeah, gilder. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And then uh, another 17 miles to the next ferry crossing, and then the last trip, the last ride, we were on the Isle of Unst, which Unst. is the farthest north island in wow. all the British Isles. Unst. And so we rode all the way to the very tip of Unst, and we camped at the edge of the North Sea, and we were actually closer to, to Norway than we were to Edinburgh. And in wow. fact, the Shetland Islands were the first stop for the Vikings. When they came across, they could make it in a day. It was 160 miles. Oh, wow. So that was their first stop on their way west. There's a lot of Viking influence. In fact, we did see a Viking ship there. Really? They, they got a restored Viking ship on the island of oh, Unst. Oh, that's awesome. I love so, that stuff. Wow. And my wife's Norwegian descent, so we got up and stood up on, I took a picture of her at the helm, like, <laughs> steering the thing. And, it was uh, her family's sh- ship. <laughs> yeah, it's her family ship. They're smaller than you they think that you think they'd be. Like for crossing the, the treacherous North Sea, these things weren't very big. Huh. Mm. What kind of big are we talking? The size of a bus, a kid's yellow bus, or uh, smaller? Uh, bigger than a bus, but probably not much longer than a really long, nah, probably lo- longer than a tractor trailer, but not much longer. Are mm. they as bare bones as I'm picturing where it's just the sail and rowing? Actually, did they even do sailing? They just did rowing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, they had sails. They, they had, had sails? sails? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. It was just, yeah, and we didn't really, we didn't go in it or anything. It's just, but you can walk on the deck and it's just. Mm. It's there just you in, are. In the, and there you are. Yeah. <laughs> completely in the conditions and the weather. They're nuts. Yeah. Oh, those Vikings. Yeah. Well, and that's the funny thing about our trip is, so we went all the way up across the Shetland Islands and had nothing but sunshine. I was, was... going to ask you, and you had only sunshine? <laughs> yeah. Wow. May's so, a good time to go. Like, <laughs> so, you know, the North Sea and Northern Scotland and the Shetland Islands are just known for horrendous, crappy weather. Right. You know? And in fact, there's a show on Netflix called Shetland. And it's a BBC crime show that takes place on the Shetland Islands. Oh, I got to watch that yeah. now. Yeah, and it's cool. And it's like the thing where, you know, the Shetland Islands are small communities. So if there's a murder, mm. it's a big deal. And <laughs> right. it's always because somebody has some shady past that nobody in the village <laughs> knew about. They don't need detectives. They just need someone to yeah. ask the 12 people there if it was them. <laughs> right. Was it you? And, was it you? But if you watch it the show, me. the weather is always horrendous. It's always pouring <laughs> rain and wind, sideways wind. Um, but yeah, we had this spectacular weather. So I, just, I like to think that it always works out for me wherever I go somewhere. <laughs> so as an adventure sure. photographer, you're out there. That was your whole goal. Do this bike trip. What was your best moment out in the Shetland Islands? You know, the, that first, that, that it was our second night camp, our second night spending night up there. And we were that campsite at the edge of the North Sea. And we're up on these sea cliffs, you know, a couple hundred feet above mm. the, the, the water. And there's just millions of seabirds out there. We saw puffins and and all these other gulls and, and other types of birds. And, and the sunset was just beautiful, crystal blue sky, clear, you know, no wind, no weather, just beautiful. It was like, you know, just running around taking pictures of everything, of the tent, the bikes, the setup, the camp scene, <laughs> the, 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 the scenery. I'm like, just running when that kind of thing happens, you you get light like that, and you just go crazy until it's gone. Mm. 
You should yeah. see Brendan. He gets excited. We arrived in our workshop in Escalante at our location, and then he was gone. He was just so excited. It was like buoyed yeah. up by the smell, the sights, the being there. And he was and the so, rocks. Yeah. so excited yeah. to be out there. So I can imagine you guys would get along pretty well. Yeah, and we're <laughs> out there by ourselves. There's not a soul around. And mm. and it was just it's just so magical to be in a situation like that. What was your I mean, favorite? That's what, that's what you live for. You know, that's what yeah, you do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What was your favorite picture from there? Uh, I've got a picture of, uh, of our two bikes that are lying down by the tent and in the background you can see like the edge of the cliff and the North sea off in the distance and just a beautiful light. It's like this, this was like, this was indicative of our adventure. It's like bike packing in the Shetland islands, (laughs) which, which, you know, like six months before I didn't know, I had heard of the Shetland islands, but I didn't know anything about them. Like I, I had to go do some work events. So I left the guidebook home with my wife, the lonely planet book. And I talked to her on the phone. She's like, we should go to the Shetland Islands. I was like, I don't, uh, where are they? You're like, yeah. down south? <laughs> yeah. So I come home and she shows me the map. I'm like, oh yeah, let's go there. Wow. <laughs> so we made a point to go there. It was pretty cool. So for someone who's thinking about going out there for photography, what would you recommend that they need to do? Three things that you guarantee that they need to do, bring, or it makes sure they experience. Uh, the number one thing is to bring a raincoat (laughs) (laughs) because you'll never get weather like that ever again. (laughs) Um, You'll never get weather like we had. Dan Bailey's weather does not exist. Everyone bring a raincoat that will never happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I actually shot it in like a controlled studio. Like I didn't really go over there. (laughs) It was all green screen. (laughs) Yeah. I just totally green screen stuff, which was really challenging because our tent is green. So it took like horrendous Photoshop work to get that out of there. The one time you had to go in and Photoshop in Lightroom. Dang. You know, if I ever have to do green screen photography, I'll just set up the tent because it's the exact same color. <laughs> nice. What would be the second thing? So um, a lot of people go, you know, Scotland is getting a lot of more, a lot of more, a lot more travelers these days. Uh, last year, I think right when we got back, the rough guides had labeled it as like the number one travel destination or the coolest place or whatever, wow. you know, some great accolade, wow. which of course means it's going to be flooded with tourists you know, much like Iceland was, has been in the past few mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And the, the nice thing about Scotland is that it is rather empty. You know, you head off into the highlands. There aren't that many roads, but there's enough to get, get yourself lost out in the middle of nowhere with, where there's almost nobody. There's also some really popular places. There's uh, the Glencoe is the most popular valley, and yeah. we didn't go there. Yep. The, Isle, the Isle of Skye is super popular. Oh, and yeah, yeah. The only reason we didn't go there or one of the reasons is that we actually rode down the, the northwest coast and we got to the town called Kyle of Lakalsh, which is right at the edge of the Sky Bridge. And all we could see is this wall of gray. Oh. <laughs> just like nothing but just like pouring rain over on, on sky. So we're like, let's take mm. the train back to Inverness. It's nice over there. Inverness. Mm. I've heard that recently. Yeah. One of one of the Photog Adventure guys, we have Photog Adventures UK, and that's James Kelly, and he's in Scotland, and he's moving to Faroe yeah. Islands, and he's done three videos for us recently at the Glencoe area. Mm. And so, yeah, Glencoe is very popular. Yeah, and so I've seen pictures of of cars 100 deep no. on that road waiting to get into Glencoe. Which well, that's it's terrible. Just, that's and I've seen, no, I've heard, yeah. I've heard, you know, stories of people finding lots, a lot more pollution there, and and the thing is, there's so many beautiful places in Scotland. Pretty much everywhere is gorgeous. And and so I, if you're going to Scotland, I would encourage you, go somewhere else. Because everybody else is going to Glencoe. <laughs> everybody else is going to Skye. And Skye is a lot bigger than Glencoe, so there's probably more, more places to explore. 
But these really popular places that you see on Instagram, they're just getting more and more people there. So go off the grid, go off the beaten path. And that's my advice for going anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fun to do research before you go on a trip and see what kind of things you're likely to see over there. But when you get there, just be open to, to whatever opportunities come your way. And, and whether it's a place name that sounds cool or whether you hear a story from a local, you know, there, there's so many beautiful places in the world to photograph. Mm-hmm. Just getting off the beaten path away from the train of 100 cars and 50 other Instagrammers trying to get the same shot for their feed, you're going to have a much better experience. Well, yeah. that's awesome. We are going to be in Scotland in September before we head out to Faroe Islands. And so we're going to be there with James, and let's do it. Let's yeah. let's call it the Dan Bailey Photog Adventure. We're going where everyone else isn't going. And we'll, right. just, we'll ask everyone, where did everyone go today? Okay, we're going that direction. <laughs> yeah, you should go to Glencoe. I hear it's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I seriously, I, right after we got back, I saw this picture, and there was like 50 or 100 cars lined up on the road trying, you know, <laughs> waiting to get there, which it's so crazy. That doesn't appeal to me at all. No, I like, see. I hear that, and I just like, nope, don't want to go there. Exactly. Right. It's like I don't want to go to a line. I, I don't need a yeah. line. I'm going to Disneyland yeah. if I want a line. Mm-hmm. And before I went, I saw pictures of Glencoe, and it's beautiful. And then I go over there, I'm like, oh wait, so is this? Oh wait, so is this? Oh wait, so is this? Like, <laughs> oh my god, look where we are. <laughs> <laughs> if you go and you see a line that's miserable, because I picture all these great photographers who have shown me stuff and sights from there, and I see that really romantic narrow road that goes through there, and I'm always picturing it as being something pretty pristine and serene and quiet. No, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like everyone's showing up now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the really the neat thing about bike touring, especially bike packing. So I, I tour with a, a, a mountain bike setup, so I can pretty much go anywhere. And so we're mm-hmm. riding on dirt roads and Jeep tracks, and, and there's lots of Land Rover tracks through the highlands. And, and the, the Scottish land access law says you can go anywhere. You can walk and ride your bike anywhere you want and even camp just about anywhere. So, you know, you can go anywhere. It, it's, you're, <laughs> you, you're, there's, there's really no limitations of places you can explore and, and beautiful places to find. Well, we not only had a Fuji recommendation, but a get your bike butt ready because you got to get that saddle <laughs> soreness gone so that you can enjoy some really long trips out to photography on a bike because that sounds freaking amazing and that'd be a lot of fun yeah. for us. That's to why do. I want to get a dirt bike so I don't have to <laughs> yeah. do all the work. Not the pedal bike you want to have. Right. A, right. Dirt bike to get you know, you're going to ruin my serenity Hard. when you're zipping through there in a noisy bike. <laughs> and even if you just get a backpack and hike farther than everybody else. Right. You know, right. if you hike farther than a mile and a half, half mile on the trail you know they're just there's so many mountains so many so much scenery over there awesome scotland's definitely on the bucket list i know that i've got friends on here like drew who are already planning on going to scotland Mm -hmm. it's an awesome place let's go ahead and take our first break of the podcast we'll come back talking to dan about his adventures in alaska where he lives with aerial photography and i'm not talking drone i'm talking flying a fixed wing plane Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast, everybody. We are here hanging out with Dan Bailey, adventure photographer on the Photography Adventure podcast. Boom. Hey, Dan, welcome back to this segment. I'm doing? Hey, it's doing well. I still own a Canon. I'm not a Fuji owner, but you definitely got me thinking about what bike I want to buy. I am thinking about a bike in the future. Mm. Maybe a little pedal bike, not one like Brendan. That's going to go... Well, I've got like four or five pedal bikes at home, so... You don't need any more. I don't need any more. I don't... Three of them are girl bikes, but are you okay with that? That's true, yes. Actually, four of them are girl bikes. (laughs) Okay. You only have five? Two of them are mine. (laughs) Dan's got six. More like six, actually. 
And then a couple little kid bikes that are spare parts for the other <laughs> kid bikes. So. He's starting to count. Dan has now got his hands out, and he's <laughs> counting his fingers going, I have this one, this one, this one. And he's already I, on 16. I think 16. When he said his next expensive hobby. I'm guessing the first expensive hobby was the bikes. The bikes have always been an expensive hobby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My other expensive hobby is guitars. Oh, my oh. gosh. I'm a guitar player, and so I, I, I joke that I blow all my photo money I, that I earn on guitars, <laughs> music stuff. Mm-hmm. Your expensive photography hobby pays for your expensive guitar <laughs> hobby that then sometimes leaks into having some bikes. <laughs> so we're going to talk about your experiences in Alaska. You mentioned that you are a pilot. I guess, I don't know if you mentioned it on here or it was Maybe just to us. Yeah. To us, he mentioned that yeah. he is a pilot in Alaska. Have you always been a pilot, or did you move to Alaska and decide, I'm going to become a pilot? Yeah, so I, it, being a pilot was, flying was kind of a lifelong dream, but it was way in the back there. It was like, I, it, yeah, I, I would dream, be yeah. great to do that, but I don't know when it's ever going to happen. Right. It would be cool, but I just didn't see it happening, because, you know, flying in planes were for people who had money, and I was a dirtbag, <laughs> right. dirtbag climber and biker for years. Well, how am I going to ever fly <laughs> but I moved to Anchorage 10 years ago, and we lived right, first apartment was right under the traffic pattern from Merrill Field. Mm. So the incessant buzzing of Cessnas and, and uh, little Piper Clubs over, Piper Cubs over, overhead every day drove me mad. I was going to say, does and, it make you love it or hate it? I would have yeah, thought. No, it, it drove me crazy. I was like, I have to do that. I have to do that. I'm going to do that. <laughs> and, and I had taken some bush plane rides uh, in Alaska before. And so I was like, I got to do this. I got to do this. And, and so I just rode my bike down to the field and I went to this flight school place and I said, Hey, what, what does it take? And $10,000 for today. (laughs) Yeah. And it was actually, it ended up being about 6,000 total. Only Uh, 6,000 for the entire training you're saying, or. Yeah. So I didn't do ground school. I just bought the books like a couple hundred dollars worth of books and manuals. And I studied every night and, and I would go flying the, the, the the main cost is plane rental and instructor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. And so it was basically about six grand worth of, of plane and instructor time. Mm -hmm. Hours up Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you have to get to 40 hours before you can take your check ride. And my goal was to take my check ride at 40 hours because there's no way I could afford it to go any farther than that. (laughs) Yeah. And and so right at at 40 hours, I said, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to take my check ride. And so about, like, we moved to Anchorage in September. And uh, at the end of April, the following year, I had my license. Wow. How do you turn this into something that helped you with your photography? Obviously, getting somewhere, but what does that really entail? Can you get somewhere you can't normally get because you fly? I'm picturing you have flight paths and landing fields, and you're restricted to those anyway. What's it like? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a lot different up here. So, so where, so where do you live? Stupid contiguous lower 48 states. Yeah. Mm. So, so where do you live? What we're, city in, do you we're in Utah. In? We're in Utah, Salt Lake. Okay, so yeah, you have you have all kinds of airspace. I mean, basically, oh, yeah. Salt Lake's its own airspace. I mean, it's like you huge, mm-hmm. busy airport. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you would have to deal with all kinds of flight, uh, you know, space issues, airspace issues, and, and traffic patterns and stuff. Uh, and actually, we have Anchorage International, Elmendorf, Merrill Field, Lake Hood, and Bryant Field. So we have a lot of traffic patterns that you have to learn when you're flying in and out of Anchorage. But once you get away from Anchorage, which is just a few miles. You can go anywhere you want. There's just class G airspace everywhere. Mm. So you can just fly anywhere you want. And so up here, we don't have very many roads. 
so an airplane really is like just a station wagon with wings, like a Subaru with wings. Mm. What I call and how do you get out of your station wagon? Yeah. So two years after I flew, after I learned to fly, um, I, I flew with the Civil Air Patrol for a couple of years and got a lot of experience and more hours and a lot of safety training and met a lot of pilots. And so I learned a lot. And then two years after that, I found a plane advertised. And so I bought this little 1947 Cessna 120, bright yellow. Oh, wow. And it's a two-seater tail dragger. And Tail dragger? What does tail dragger mean? Yeah, so so planes, most planes have a tricycle gear, or two, and then the one in the front. Okay. And, it's got three but tail, wheels. And tail wheel, tail dragger has the two wheels and then the little wheel in the back. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, and, so just that angle, it always looks like it's dragging its tail. Okay, it's exactly. literally and, a tail dragger. Hmm. And those are great for off-airport because you're, you've lifted the propeller farther away from the ground, so you're less likely to hit hit things and and uh and also it's less likely to tip over um, oh, okay well actually you, you can tip them over but it's but you, you're it's it's just more conducive to off airport stuff and so um, off airport means you're landing in places that are large enough to land in not an like airstrip you're yeah. talking a field that's big enough yeah so i that's cool land on <laughs> gravel bars and uh thunder <laughs> oh. benches and beaches and what? and so, yeah. So I uh, about forty miles from Anchorage, we have uh, a couple of really big glaciers, and huge gravel bars, you know, and river valleys that are just full of little places to land. That's and so, awesome. I, one of my favorite places to land. There's a couple strips right up by the glacial moraine, and so I can go. I can leave my house and fly in about forty-five minutes. I can land, and walk five, 10 minutes and be right at the edge of the glacier. Whoa. So, so that's how I spend a lot of my summer days and evenings is flying out to the glaciers and, and either flying over and shooting aerials out the window, uh, or landing and just walking around the glacier areas, you know, around the icebergs in the wintertime, I can land out there and just walk on the frozen glacier lagoon. All the icebergs are just frozen into place. Oh man. Wow. And so you can walk around there in the summertime, uh, just walk along the shore of the lake and you see the icebergs that have you know drifted across. My iPad's getting wet with all my drool right now. I am so <laughs> jealous of that idea. <laughs> yeah. and, and how and, expensive is the gas? Can you do it all the time? Are you doing just fine? Because it sounds like you're getting in your vehicle like I get in my car, and it's your plane that you fly to a glacier and experience awesomeness. Mm. Yeah, so gas is about it's about four to five bucks a gallon up here. And my plane burns five gallons an hour, and uh, that's so not that I bad. so the it's way like I equated it, I, kind of it gets about the same. Back, yeah. yeah, it gets about the same mileage as my Toyota pickup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's insane. That's awesome. Yeah, and and so um, yeah, I, you know, I'll go. I can go, you know, thirty-five, forty dollars, and go have a great day out at the glacier and fly back. I love yeah, how nonchalantly yeah. you say this with a shrug on your shoulders. <laughs> yeah. you know, I just, just fly a plane to wherever I want, and I just do whatever yeah. I please because I live in Alaska. Yeah, <laughs> and so the other, I guess that's what's awesome yeah. about Alaska. <laughs> in fact, most most of the times I get in the plane, and uh, and and I'll even like when I'm taking a friend flying, and we'll be flying up there. I'll look at my friend and be like, "I can't believe they let us do this." <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome! I mean, that's really what it's like to be flying. Is like I can't believe I get to do this. Yeah. Like, sh- shouldn't I be like following rules or 
Shouldn't I be? I mean, there's something I'm not doing. I'm breaking some kind of rules. I'm but missing something. I'm really not. Yeah, but I'm not really one for rules so much. So, uh, so it fits really well with my personality. Yeah. So you were talking earlier about using a lighter camera because you're straining your forearm muscle. Was it out the window of your plan, or not really out? I'm assuming you'd drop your camera, but holding your arm up high enough to shoot out the window is that how you would shoot out your window aerial photography, or do you have it set up differently? Yeah, that actually brings up a really good point. Um, so yeah, I do a lot of aerial photography, and so I'll fly up around the mountains, and I just open the window, and it stays open because of the, the wind blast You know, when you're mm. flying. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so it just stays open. open. I just open it and push it up, and it just stays up. And then I have my right hand, my left hand on the yoke, and my Fuji is in my right hand, and I'm just shooting pictures out the window. Mm. I just hold it right <laughs> inside the window so it doesn't get buffeted by the wind. That's but awesome. The, the, the thing about the mirrorless cameras and the Fuji is, you know, I have a full-time LCD screen that shows me exactly what my scene's going to look like yeah. with full-time autofocus. Yeah. And so it's full-time full -time live view, but with, with regular full-performance autofocus. With mm -hmm. a DSLR, live view limits you to contrast detect autofocus, which is notoriously slow and right. just constantly hunting. So you can't really shoot real life with you'd have to guess you have yeah. to guess like, yeah yeah and so so the other because you you don't want to there's no way you could fly and look out look in the camera like this while i'm trying to fly that would just be not quite the safest thing to do no. but no one it's says you rules can't against that <laughs> that would be like a self-imposed rule i would make that right. rule you know some of those are important especially when you're the pilot yeah mm -hmm. and by the same with bike riding Sky i long. you know if i'm right if i'm pedaling along i can just like shoot looking at the screen and and so that's actually a huge advantage to the mirrorless cameras, whether right. you're shooting planes or bikes or even just walking or shooting different viewpoints. Um, so yeah, the lightweight and the, uh, the full-time screen is, is it's really one of the things that has made the aerial photography possible for me. There's no way I could do that unless I took someone to fly with me every time. Right, right. And it's just, you know, and, and I've done that before, when I, before I shot Fuji, I shot the Nikons, and I did take a friend flying with me sometimes, and he's a capable pilot, good friend of mine. So I can communicate what I want to do, but but when I'm in the moment and I'm seeing something unfold, and I want to turn this way and catch this ridge that way, I, I, there's no way I could dictate exactly, you know, what what I would want someone to fly, mm. you know, pattern. Yeah. But but I'm just thinking geometrically as I'm shooting and flying, and I see the terrain, and I see the mountains. And I see that ridge. Oh, I have an idea. When I capture the ridge like this, if I if I lean over and turn, I can catch the light on it in this angle. So it's just, oh, wow. it, it's just this like it, it, you know, I the way I describe it is I I cut my teeth as an action adventure photographer, which means I had to learn to see and compose and execute a shot very quickly, or the subject would be gone. Right. right. Yeah. So I'm point. kind of using the same approach when I'm shooting aerials. It's just because, you're whizzing past everything. Yeah, like, you're whizzing mm -hmm. past it, and it doesn't stop. And every every second is a different scene because right. it's constantly moving. Right. So be shooting in continuous mode and just anticipating how you know this might look against that with you know it's just wow. a constant constant motion and it's it's pretty cool it, <laughs> yeah it, it it's really the aerials the alaska aerials is some of my favorite work i've ever done and i think it's the, some of the most adventurous in terms of the feelings it evokes when i look at them gosh this has got to be the most like in it, what am i trying to say something that we talk about on the podcast where we're encouraging people 
by saying how awesome it is. And yet 99% of the people are never going to have a chance to do this. Right. I mean, that's freaking amazing. In my mind, I'm now planning. So how can we get to Dan's house (laughs) and what can we bring to him to... We should have asked for his address before (laughs) the podcast. (laughs) A nice bottle of whiskey. Yeah. So how much whiskey do we need to bring to bribe him to hang out for a day? And (laughs) we'll give it to him after the flight. (laughs) Yeah. After the flight's a good idea. (laughs) He'll be out of commission for a while. Fly out to the glacier. Oh, I can only take one of you at a time. You can fly out to the glacier. Uh-huh. We can chip chip little pieces of ice off the icebergs on the beach and bring them home. You can have little <laughs> little like hundred year old ice in your little glass of scotch. Wow. Oh, not too much crazy. though. You don't want to ruin the taste by dousing it in ice, but just a little right. bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So then, <laughs> I, I asking some of these questions that I would typically ask is just so irrelevant because I'm never going to be doing this myself, where I'm the pilot, except in maybe some weird distant future so i'm picturing now you just i'm not able to do this so you let me live through you by proxy what was your probably like take us through your favorite photo doing that method like the whole situation where you were when you decided that was a good composition and how you got yourself to set up that composition and then what the picture was and how it all turned out so when i go through my aerial photography collections like when i when i go through them on lightroom and stuff I, I remember each section because I, rem- I remember each flight. Oh, and okay. so each, yeah, every, okay. every flight's different, and every flight has different light, different weather conditions, different wind, different temperature when I open the window. <laughs> right. Mm. You know, I, yeah. I've had some where I open the window, I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm or, in the stratosphere. <laughs> or sometimes where I'll, I, like, maybe in the springtime, that the light's really nice, like March and April. It's still it's still really cold at 8,000 feet. But a couple of times I've gotten lazy. I'll just take a light jacket with me. It's springtime. And I get up there, I'm like, oh, my arm is so cold. Um, but so, and, and I'll get, I'll continue that in a sec. But when you were saying that you're never going to do this. Right. When I, when, when I think about the style I'm shooting, it's just, it's just seeing things and composing quickly in my mind no matter what you're shooting. So if you're driving in a car or riding a bike or even just walking, you know, I've, I've learned to just see very quickly and I like mm-hmm. to call it seeing geometrically. So I just constantly gauging my scene and I see, Oh, that, that mountain, that hiker, the way the light is going to hit that, these clouds are might clear. And then I can put myself in the position. So it's just anticipating your scenes and, and doing what you need to make them happen and not saying that's a better approach, but as opposed to being very methodical and very slow and very calculated, which some people enjoy, and I've done that at times as well. But I just I'm kind of a spaz, and I just really enjoy going really fast and 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 just seeing things quickly as they move. So seeing wow. geometrically. That's what yeah. you call that. That's mm-hmm. interesting. And you could do that in any situation, whether you're flying or not. Yeah, like in yeah, the car, as you said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could be shooting portraits outside, or you can be shooting landscapes or wildlife, or because it's all a matter of positioning subject, background, and light mm-hmm. in the optimum way. Right. Yeah. So, do you have that one story of doing aerial photography that you love to share with other people? Um, <laughs> yeah, the the it, it just when you open the window, you never know what it's going to be like when you go up. You know, you take off and. the weather's clear in the west so you hope to get a good sunset and it doesn't always happen but man when it happens it's just like magic it's like it's like kind of rehearsing this 
it's like a rock concert or a symphony. Like you get up there and you've been practicing all this time and now it's performance time. The window goes open and the camera's on and Velvia mode on the camera and you're just, <laughs> and you're looking and you're looking for these mountains and you see, and, and the, the closer it gets to sunset, the more pink it becomes and the right, more dramatic it gets. Right. And so you can hear this crescendo of music playing in your head and and it's like this peak moment when it's the absolute best and you just catch you look for the most dramatic scene to try to catch the most dramatic light from the best angle in the plane. And then sometimes I'll make multiple passes and I'm like, ooh, I gotta get that again. And so I'll I'll quickly spin around and I'll I'll come <laughs> back for another pass and stuff. And then it's gone and it fades and it's just like it's it's just it's over it, yeah. yeah it's over but yeah. you but you but you have it in the camera and then you and of course then it's like 45 minutes to a you know flight home back to the field and uh back to anchorage and so you get all this time to think about it and kind of watch the fading pink turn to blue and kind of purple and so it's it's really it's really kind of a special thing and 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 since i'm flying unique patterns i'm shooting things i'm shooting scenes that no one has ever shot before in that way right you know i'm not standing in front of the 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 scene the rock the famous mountain with a hundred other people tripods in almost the exact same position right, right i'm like shooting from perspectives that have never been captured because yeah. even i'm flying different flight paths every time and we're so. stuck so much by the roadways that get you there or the hike paths that mm -hmm. get you there or the ways that allow you to hike around and all those angles are consistent and been done by other photographers because it's accessible. Mm -hmm. You are in places in an axis of the Y axis that you can change everything. Right. In your That's right. I have the Y axis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh. it, it, it's really special. It's, uh, it, it's really a fulfilling, um, like when I say it's the most, some of the most exciting and fulfilling work I've ever shot and the most, most adventurous and dramatic. I think it's, it's some of the best stuff I've ever done. Okay, bucket That's list, Brendan. Really cool. As Photog Adventures, we are sitting here right now. We're just trying to earn like 3000 a month someday. That's what we'd like to get to. But yeah. let's make our ultimate, ultimate goal owning a plane like this and doing that photography because he's an adventure photographer. We're Photog Adventures. We'd be hollow without that. <laughs> you need that. You know, that. found the missing piece. Yeah. That was the missing piece. You need that. But maybe by the time there'll be a drone, a personal drone that I just put on like a backpack and just fly up anywhere I want. You know, maybe. and that's funny because I, I have a, a, oftentimes I'm, people tell me, you should get a drone. <laughs> you're like, you're like I am the drone. <laughs> yeah, I am a drone. Either that or like when I when I tag aerial photography on like social media. Oh, yeah, they get all these, that. All these reply from drone companies. All these like, you know. <laughs> you're like, that's like, a great yeah, you, shot. That's a great drone shot you did. Uh, I was yeah, you should. Yeah, like here's all these drone accessories to market to you. <laughs> Why would I want to put this on my Cessna? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's really funny. And then. And, you know, the drone thing is pretty interesting, and I, I can see the appeal. I mean, it's basically like, you know, remote control helicopters for grown-ups. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I can see the appeal. Um, but, I, yeah, I've had people say, you should get a drone. I'm like, there's no way I could get these shots with a drone because you can only fly a drone two miles for like 15 minutes. Right. Mm, yeah. And you can't go 8,000 feet up. And yeah. if you do, you'll lose your drone, most likely. <laughs> <laughs> you'll lose your drone. And unless you're Drew, you don't have a camera that nice on your drone. <laughs> right. <laughs> Drew's got awesome stuff, man. And, and actually, mm. I know I, I know that some drone setups are really expensive. Mm. And I'm, I'm positive that some guys between the camera and the drone 
and the and the and the don't say the it. helmet cam and the and the controllers. They have as much into their drone system as don't I have in my stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. Including your well, yeah, your lessons were six thousand. I mean, yeah, wow. That's yeah. actually true. All you have to do is live in a place where you don't have the crazy nanny laws and restrictions that we have and mm-hmm. be able to do what you know Dan's doing up in Alaska. That's right. key. That's yeah, but think, key. Of, think about how all the photographic topo- aerial photography opportunities you can do around the canyon lands and stuff. Because oh, yeah. a lot of that's BLM land. It's not national parks. Right. True. Could we fly like you fly out there, though? I mean, you'd probably have to have a lot of over, permits. But not, uh, not land. You couldn't land. Yeah. yeah. There are places. I, I have friends that have done raft and canyon trips, so they've seen little bush planes out there land. Um, mm-hmm. The, the, the oh, things that you those. have working against you are the heat and the altitude. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, I, we're at up. sea level, and it's cold here. In the wintertime, right. it's you know just 10 or 20 below up in the sky, and planes perform so much better in cold weather. The cold oh, air. I didn't know that uh, and, about planes. Yeah, the cold yeah, because you're like basically the pillow you float you, on top of. Oh. Yeah, you need a certain amount of. You know, your your wings yeah, are yeah. your wings are operating with lift and the propeller generating you know momentum by cutting through air, and the thicker the air parcels, the the faster you go and the more lift you get. I see. And mm-hmm. as you gain altitude, the air gets thinner, and as you gain as the air gets hotter, it's thinner as well. It's less dense, and so. Like flying in the summertime in Utah would be really difficult. <laughs> You'd have to be really careful about climbing, not not getting in situations where you can't outclimb the terrain. Mm. Oh, wow! Making wow. making turns and stalling. Making your last so. decision ever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. then, and it's just the thing. It, it, it is a very technical activity, and and that's one of the things I enjoy about it. I used to rock climb a lot, and I haven't climbed very much lately. Um, but it, the flying is very similar. It gives me a similar feel because it's, it's, it's a very technical activity with a very high element, element of risk mm. and potential danger. Um, but if you manage your risks well, it's immense rewards. Right, right. <laughs> and great views. It's amazing. I, before we take our last break of the podcast, I've got to know, what is the best picture you've taken there? What's the picture you printed on your wall that you say, I do aerial photography. Check this out. This is my favorite shot of aerial photography. What's it of? Uh, there's there's two pictures that come to mind. The one picture was on the cover of I put on the cover of my ebook last year, my Fuji ebook X Series Unlimited, and it's a horizontal horizontal picture of Mount Beelzebub, and it's just just pink, just pink light. <laughs> mm. Awesome. Just it's, and then the other one is uh, a vertical picture of this peak that's it doesn't even have a name. It's uh, because the way that the way the mountain naming conventions are, it has to have a certain amount of elevation between the next named peak, and so this is oh. out there. It doesn't it doesn't? And it's there's so many peaks out there with, that are unnamed as well because they're not even like no one's very few people have been there. Huh, but this is just this this perfect sort of triangle vertical triangle mountain with a beautiful summit and a long ridge, and the background is just like the shadowed background is just deep deep blue. A nice velvia blue, and then the mountain itself is this orangey pink, just right, this 
beautiful and just Delvia <laughs> does wonders for who needs processing. When your photography still leaves you speechless, you know you nailed it. That's yeah. awesome, Dan. I can probably yeah. find. <laughs> so let's go ahead and take our last break of the podcast. We'll come yeah. back. We'll do gear time tip of the week, and we'll find out where we can go find that picture from Dan over on his content online, and we can follow him because, man, if you guys aren't already following Dan Bailey, we all need to. Yeah, for sure. Hey, welcome back, guys, to the Photog Adventures podcast. So we're here with Dan Bailey, and we're going to talk about his ebook for Gear Time and some other stuff. Uh, tip of the week is going to also include his philosophy of seeing geometrically. So, Dan, tell us a little bit more about your ebook, and uh, we'll put a link on our show notes so people can download it. Yeah, you just okay. finished the ebook, huh? So, we'll want to make sure everyone gets out there and gets it. If you have a Fuji camera, you're going to want this book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I do a lot of uh, talks and, and workshops and, and uh, presentations about the Fuji cameras and how I use them. And last year, I was at Glazer's in Seattle doing a talk. It was an advanced X-T2 class. So I okay. was talking to people about you know, some of the more in-depth features that the X-T2 has and what you can do with it. And it was just nonstop. People were like, can it do this? Can it do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? Can it do this? Mm. Oh, Mr. Bailey, can I do this? <laughs> and and so I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to write it all down. And and uh, and I had I'd thought about, you know, I toyed around with the idea of writing a Fuji camera manual, but I was like, I am not going to write a camera manual. Right, right. But after this class, I was just like, okay, I'm going to write it all down because I know what it can do. So I went home and I sat, uh, I sat down for a month solid and I wrote a 50,000 word ebook and I went through every feature, every setting, every capability on the Fuji X series cameras. And I listed what each setting does, how it works, what it's what it's designed to do and, and how you can use it in real life settings. So I would show pictures you know, picture examples, photos to show, yeah, I use this setting to create this picture, and this is what you can do with that right, setting. Right. And then some settings, I'm like, it does this, but don't worry. You don't need to ever change that. And so just in the most real-world practical mm-hmm. sense that I could come up with, I wrote this book. And I offered it for sale in July on my blog last year. And, like, I spent the best month of the summer writing a book, which I <laughs> was like, why am I doing this? It's Alaska. It's June. This is not what I should be doing. I should be out riding my bike. But I knew it was going to be a, a worthwhile project. And I had people cause I had people email me questions all the time. Well, can my camera do this? So same thing. Right. Like, I don't right. know. So I put it up for sale on July 12th last year, and it sold like crazy. And I had the Fuji Love guy and the Fuji X Forum guys were helping sell it for me, and they, mm, they advertised awesome. it. And it sold like crazy. And it was my best. It became my best-selling ebook in like two days ever. Whoa! And so it sold uh, quite a few thousand copies over the course of the next few months. Yeah. And I was, and I was at Photo Plus trade show in the fall, and I walked by the Rocky Nook book, Rocky Nook booth, and they were like, I was like, "Hi, I'm Dan Bailey." And they're like, "Hey, we know who you are, and mm. and we see, we've seen your ebook. Would you ever consider doing a print version?" And I was like, well, funny you should ask that because I came over to ask you the same question. <laughs> and so this this month, the the official let's see where's the shadow. The, this month, the official paperback version of X Series Unlimited has nice. been by Rocky Nook. Yeah. Nice. 
Yeah, there we go. That's so great. it's 256 pages, and wow. it's just lots of photo examples, and I go through every setting. Oh, my. And so, you know, so this is a must-have. It's a must-have. Yeah, you've, I mean, this, you is, the this XT, is the essential guide for any Fuji shooter. Yeah. How long because did it take you to write that book again? You said you had the pictures like the in whole there. Month. Yeah, it was a that's month. All it was a month straight. A month? A month straight, like every night that's, working on it for a month. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of every working day. A month. Every day, yeah. every day, like sitting on. It was either sitting at this table out here in my living room with my cameras all <laughs> up, or I was sitting on the front porch or yeah. in the backyard my on my patio. Wow. But. Uh, so yeah, I got it done, and now the print book's out. And yeah, it really is the essential guide for Fuji users, because like I said, it's it's real world that's going to help you maximize your creativity and performance with Fuji cameras. That's and awesome. And it's not it's not specific to any one model. The nice thing about the Fuji system is that so um, almost all of the settings and features are common to all the models. Okay. So so I was able to write a book that encompasses pretty much every camera. Well, that's and great. there, and where there are settings that are applicable to only some, I try to list those. Okay. And so I have the ebook version on my site, and I have the print version. Um, one advantage of the ebook version is that as Fujifilm has been issuing updates for their cameras, they do firmware updates on a regular basis. Right. I've been updating the the ebook version to include those new features that they put in the cameras. Whereas the other print version, you have to do like a second edition and so on, right? Yeah, I'll probably do a second edition down the road. Yeah. And and really it it's it's current, you know, pretty much up until now. There's been a couple firmware updates since the books come out, but just minor things and oftentimes they're like, you know, autofocus improvement where you don't right. need to wouldn't right. need to do a chapter. Right. But I the book's current up through the XH1 release. So I talk about that. Cool. So All then right. for someone who's considering um buying this book what would be the freebie tip that you would give them right now that's in the book to get a taste of what's in the book? Just one freebie tip. Hmm. Let's, let's see. Let's see. Um, uh, one, one thing that, that I uh, use quite often are the, the custom settings. Uh, on the X-Series cameras, you have highlight, sh- highlight and shadow tone and color adjustments, and you find those in the Q menu. Okay. And... And a lot of people don't know what those do, and I didn't know what they did for, for quite a while. And it was finally at a trade show with one of the Fuji reps, and I was like, well, what do these do? Let's just sit down and figure out what they do. And I finally got a, an understanding of how to use them in a creative way and also to help preserve highlights and, and, uh, and shadow detail. So I talk about how you can use those to not only technically shoot photos with better exposures, but add a, a creative style Mm. Um, to your for your photos that that just give it a different feel, different mood. You can vary them quite a bit. Cool, awesome, very cool. Well, then you guys out there, Brent, if you haven't already bought it, anyone else who's got a Fuji, we know that Rusty has a Fuji. Mm-hmm. If you guys are considering Fuji, have a Fuji. Definitely look up Dan Bailey's book. It's the quintessential book on the Fuji X series. It's called X series what again? Essentials. Essentials. Yeah, they, yeah. The book is X series unlimited. Unlimited. And then, and, and then the print book is, yeah, saying Fujifilm okay. X Series Unlimited, and they All sell right. us on, on Amazon and the Rocky Nook website, and nice, cool. So, and, and then my book is on my blog, which I'll give you guys the link. Okay, awesome. The link will be down below in the show notes, guys. Or you can go to photogadventures.com forward slash ep eighty yeah. one. Just remember my birth date and the year that you did what again? You were saying. 
I was in seventh grade in 1981. Seventh grade, and that's when he had his first kiss. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's thinking now, was it? <laughs> that's my third or fourth kiss. No, no, I, I was a late bloomer. Girls didn't like me in seventh grade. I was too much of a dork. <laughs> and now you're just a nerdy photographer who writes and books. And now I'm in just a month. nerdy photographer who <laughs> writes books instead of riding my bike in the summer. Yeah. But now that, that the book's all written, I can ride all summer long and I don't have to do any more book writing this year. Yeah, mm, awesome. That, that must be a good feeling. So let's talk it's, a little yeah. bit more about your uh, your geometric. Yeah, seeing uh, geometrically. Seeing, seeing geometric, yeah, seeing geometrically <laughs> yeah. when you're out shooting. Let's start with saying it and then we'll get to seeing Once it. Once I get it out of my mouth correctly, then. <laughs> yeah. How would you, you know, explain some, that process? Some words to just have a hard time to roll off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How would you explain that process to someone who struggles with composition and you want to tell them to think about things this way? What would you tell the basic student? What would be your layman's terms for seeing geometrically? Another way to describe seeing geometrically, and in and, and a way it's seeing into the future because you're essentially trying to establish what might happen mm, and yeah. what, what's likely going to happen. So it's easy scene. to do then. It's easy. Okay, yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's easy to do. Yeah, I mean, we can all see into the future. So. <laughs> can't, can't you? Can't you? <laughs> oh, wait, maybe you, maybe in you, you guys don't have that in Utah yet. Oh, no, it's no, in the it's 48 uh, states. Lower 48s don't have yeah, it. Yeah, we're pretty progressive. It's only it was citizenship uh, benefit, I guess. The government kept us from having that. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, like, when you think about composing a picture, you have a few elements that are necessary. You have your subject, you have a background, and you have light. And then you have the angle at which you're going to shoot your subject, which dictates the, the style of light that's going to fall on your subject. And so if you can anticipate any one of those things or more, it can reduce the workload on your picture-taking process. Okay. And so my, my best example for, for illustrating this is to think about shooting a baseball game. So you're there and you're on the, on the sidelines or whatever they call the – you're you know, by the dugout or whatever mm-hmm. – foul line, I guess. And so you're going to capture, you know, star batter gets up, you know, and you're ready to capture this, the, the play. Well, you have the convenience, you have the knowledge that the ball is going to start with the pitcher and it's going to wind up and he's going to huck it towards home plate. And one of two things is going to happen. Either the batter is going to swing or he's not. And if he swings, one of two things is going to happen. He's either going to whack the ball or it's going to end up in the catcher's mitt. And if he hits it, you know exactly where he's going to go. He's going to mm-hmm. head to first base. And mm-hmm. so you know, well, if I train my, my point my camera right at the base here, right at the first baseman, I can nail the play. Or, you know, or else if he, like say there's a guy on third base, you know if there's going to be a base hit, that dude on third is going to take off for home plate. Mm-hmm. And the guys at the infield are going to huck the ball to the catcher. And, and you know that he's probably going to slide and have a collision at home plate with the catcher. You know those things are going to happen, or you know very with, with a high degree of likelihood that they're going to happen. So if you can get ready and train your camera on those situations, and you think, well, it's going to be a fast action play. I should use a high shutter speed unless I want to blur it. And then I should make sure I'm set my autofocus so that I can either track the runner as he's coming in, or I'm going to focus right on the catcher for when that collision happens. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of, you're de- delegating your own workload and taking care of problems, before identifying issues and problems and, t- and establishing solutions so that you don't have to do it all at once. Because if, if the batter hits it 
and the third base runner takes off and you're like, oh, wait, I'm going to get this picture. Um, I should set my camera. Wait, what film simulation am I going to use? Uh, my autofocus, should I be an AFC or AFS? Or should I be, should I use P or auto exposure? Or maybe you can do this manually. It's over. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> Safe. <laughs> Safe. Right. And you're fired. And you're fired. <laughs> so, um, you know, and thinking in terms of like hiking, you're, you're hiking a trail and you're kind of gumming it above tree line and you see this beautiful rock face off in the distance and it's late in the day and the sun is low in the sky and it's going to be a beautiful sunset and you see there's some clouds right over the sun now but you can tell you can tell which way they're moving and your hiker friend is moving forward and you see this really cool vantage point you can say well hey I can get my hiking friend I can get my friend and photograph them against that rock face which is going to turn bright orange when the clouds clear and the sun goes beaming through, hmm. I should be over here to get that. And so you just you're identifying the ah. the solutions of your scene mm-hmm. in your mind before they happen. Right. And and that's and it's called and you know it's anticipation and it comes from you know you you just knowing what's likely going to happen. So if you have experience shooting baseball, if you have experience you know shooting a different sport, you you know what's going to happen. Same with rock climbing. You know his guy's going to try to climb up this rock and he's going to place protection and he's going to try to clip the carabiner when he's really sketched out and he's either going to nail it and his face is going to be like filled with fear mm-hmm. and if he doesn't clip it in time, he's going to take a 20-foot whipper <laughs> and you're going to cancel that. So right. you find the best vantage point to capture all that. And so it, same thing with a landscape. You know, you're, you're identifying the, the elements of your scene and where the light's going to come in from and... You know, what do you want to accentuate in the scene? How you want to photograph it? What lens you want to use? The more you can think about that stuff as you're approaching the scene, instead of getting on the scene and going, oh, this is really cool. I want to shoot that. Well, how am I going to shoot it? What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And if you defer it all until the last minute, you're going to feel rushed and you're going to probably not nail the scene as you want to and you walk away. I've never had that happen before. What? Uh, no, yeah, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, you know, you, then you go home with all these raw files and you get a, people go hey how'd you go hiking today let me see your pictures you go well I gotta process them first let me yeah, alone give me yeah, a few yeah. months <laughs> <laughs> well I can see already the most obvious way that we already use this is in our Milky Way photography because obviously mm-hmm. we're planning that we know the Milky Way is gonna move up into this position and we're pointed in that direction waiting for it we're ready for it so hey dan that's an awesome piece of advice i think that's going to be something that people can use and think about especially with kids photography working with anything Anything, that's action i mean that's awesome um before i ask you where everyone can find you online did you have one more piece of advice it sounded like you were starting to say something there for a second i didn't want to cut you off yeah, there is no better training for being an action photographer than photographing your friend's toddlers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because kids and grandkids move quicker and more radically than anybody. Yeah, man, you want to zoom and you want fast zoom, man. You want like <laughs> Yeah. So like in the yeah. Fuji cameras and I think the Canons have this too, like the AFC custom settings. Mm. Like they should have toddler mode. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, they should, huh? Like built-in toddler mode. Or it'll focus yeah, like, on the far quadrant and the other far quadrant instantly, back and forth. Yeah. yeah you go like, either direction. <laughs> yeah, toddler mode and puppy mode. New puppy mode. Yeah, yeah. puppy mode, yeah. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> We've locked our researchers in a room with puppies and toddlers to learn how to make <laughs> this happen for our cameras. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks, Dan, for taking so much time to hang out with us tonight. We really, really, really appreciate awesome. it. Hey, yeah. Brent, thank you for hooking us up with your man crush, Dan Bailey. It's been fantastic. <laughs> We're all having a man crush on him. Or is it just green with envy because I want an airplane. Hmm. It's the airplane. Yeah, it's maybe a little bit both. <laughs> I would be so much less cool to talk to if I didn't have it in the airplane. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm just a little bigger <laughs> guy. I'm just a guy who takes pictures, yeah. I take pictures. You've also got an awesome portfolio that we were just looking at at your mm-hmm. danbaileyphoto.com. Where else can everyone follow you, find you, anything that they can use to see more of your work? Yeah, so uh, Instagram and Twitter at danbaileyphoto. Okay. And then my blog uh, which I'm pleased to say has been ranked as one of the top photography blogs on the web in the past few years. Nice. Really? So that's been a real honor because I've been plugging away at that thing for about 11 or 12 years, and, and I've learned a lot. It's, it's all about helping other photographers be more proficient, more creative, and enjoying the funness of photography. If there's one message right. I want to impart to photographers is this is fun. It doesn't need to be serious. I know way, I'm sure we all know way too many serious photographers. You go out to the Milky Way, it's probably all the serious guys in tripods. <laughs> and there's no laughing allowed out there. Some of us are fun. Hey, hey. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not talking about you guys. You guys are totally fun. But you, I mean, you know the type. You're like these yeah. serious oh, nature yeah. We run into those guys. You turn yeah, on your light, them. they yell at you and cuss you out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and like no laughing behind the tripod. It's like as soon as the, <laughs> yeah. you know. Welcome to just, church. <laughs> yeah. It's this is fun. My church. Photography is fun. It should be a joyous activity and it, it shouldn't be intimidating. It should right. be. It should be a fun way to pass your time and exercise your creativity. And if you're spending way too much time processing or if your camera's too heavy or if there's any element that makes it unenjoyable, change it because you should be having fun out there. Amen. Sounds good. Seriously, you started (laughs) off as the missionary of Fuji and now the prophet and the like... (laughs) What the <laughs> advice of the wit, the wise, wise? I don't want to say old man because that's just offensive. <laughs> uh, I, I like I like to think of it. I like to call myself the perpetrator of fun. <laughs> <laughs> the perpetrator of fun. Well, yeah. it's been awesome hanging out with you, perpetrator of fun, son, and having a great chance to learn from you. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us. If you guys want to follow Dan, please go to those sites, follow his Instagram, and just basically start getting jealous that you don't own a plane. Yeah. Yeah, I post post tons of aerials and glacier stuff on Instagram. It's It's all over there. Yeah, it's awesome. Tons of eye candy. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of having fun with your photography, guys, there's still a chance to earn the Royce Bear ebook. We're giving away two of them at the end of this month. You know Mm. Royce Bear? He is the father of Milky Way photography to us. We we follow him as our master. (laughs) He used to own the the Stock Solutions, Stock Agency downtown. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I used to submit there. And I used to, so I, when I was in Salt Lake, I would go visit him. Oh, nice. really? You know Royce then? Awesome. Okay. He's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, he is. I haven't seen I saw him somewhat recently, a few years ago. I can't remember where it was. <laughs> I don't know if you knew it, but he does Milky Way photography like crazy. And he's brilliant at it. And he has a great ebook. And so we're offering two free copies to the listeners. The challenge this month to earn that is you have to go to the Facebook group, the Facebook, the Photog Adventures listeners group, join the group, answer the questions. So the admins and I, we know that Brendan and I know that you yeah, are a real person, a real person yeah. legit. Answer those questions. If you don't, we will not let you into the group. You answer <laughs> those questions, then you go and you post. And we don't have the post up yet. Uh, Rob or Dan, anyone want to help me hook this up? We need to get a post up that says, 
put your your pictures here in this thread. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and like a gallery, custom gallery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the picture has to be a place that you have never been before. Shooting the Milky Way. It doesn't mean it has to be an hour away from your house. It could just be I've never shot the Milky Way with this red wagon underneath it, or I've never right. shot the Milky Way with that <laughs> car over there, mm-hmm. or underneath that rock and this waterfall. Whatever it takes for you to get out somewhere where you've never done it before. Submit a Milky Way Put shot. Go to a new place and That's do it and get her done. Exactly. Yeah. And we'll pick the favorite two, and we'll give you guys a free copy of Roy Spears' ebook at the end of the month. And a free Cessna, right? And oh, a yeah. free Cessna. It comes in <laughs> two-inch quality, and it'll be plastic. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Dan, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. It's been awesome. Yeah, it was my pleasure, guys. I had a lot of fun talking to you guys. Everybody have a good week, and we'll see you guys next Wednesday. Okay, see you guys. Bye. All right, bye.